condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines on SOT Radio Network. Today in the studio, we have Joe Quinn. Hi there. Neil Bradley. Hi there. Elan Martin. Hello, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, and today we're going to be trying to account for the whole bunch of news that's been happening over the last week or so. It's been coming nonstop. I mean, last week, I think, or the week before that, I said, we usually say the same thing, you know, every week, but it just becomes more true every succeeding week, where it just seems like things are happening at a rapid pace and kind of going pear-shaped the world over. So we're going to try to get through as much of it as possible today, but, um, well, we'll see. We'll try. We're going to try to keep it short on each topic. And if you have any news, uh, anything you want to talk about throughout the show, feel free to call in at any time. Um, and, you know, we'll go over or things. Or let us know in the pop-up. Yeah. Or just ask us questions. Be like, what about this? What let about that? Chat. Yeah. And and we'll try to do it. So to start out with, what do we want to do first? Maybe uh, maybe let's start with the our sports desk. <laughs> so what's, go- what's going on in the sports world? We have a sports desk? <laughs> We yeah. do <laughs> sporting event that was otherwise known as the uh, Democratic National Convention. Yeah, yeah. sporting event. Yeah, yeah. With all these people cheering and screaming and holding up the the signs for their favorite team and ultimate and fighting yes, champ. Ultimate fighting championship. And, yeah, where you see the Republican and Democratic uh, nominees fight to the death, or yeah. at least knock each other out. It's really only one step away from that, you know. <laughs> when you look at it, you know, it just looks for all the world like a like a sports sports meeting, you know, a big sporting event, you know. Mm-hmm. Super Bowl or something, people are acting in exactly the same way. Um but uh I don't know, do we want to start with that or we want to start with Let's do the stuff? Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. So what's been going on with the Olymp- the Olympics? Well, um I think everyone's probably heard about this major doping scandal with the uh, um, the Russian team, and um, well, does, who wants to give up some background on this, and then we can get into the latest developments. Uh, background is about a year ago, or a bit less even. Um, I think it was the U.S. No, WADA. That's an acronym for World Athletics something. I can't remember. Anti-doping agency, I think. Perhaps um, began these allegations that the Russian athletes in particular were doped to the nines. Uh, some of them certainly are, but then they are everywhere. Um, but this began, uh, it was getting a lot of traction, especially in Germany initially, as far as I remember. Uh, anyway, it began a theme of 
Russian athletes being singled out for breaking regulations on taking banned substances. Although the athletics uh, track and field events were the first thing they reported on, it took a break from that. And then beginning of this year, uh, focused on other sports, uh, particularly tennis, of course, one of the best female tennis players in the world, Maria Sharapova, she got banned and then it became uh, a big issue. And, but that's, it's almost like a separate scandal in itself. It's just one after the other. And now it's back to track and field events. And the short of it is that they want the U S and Canada were pushing to have all Russian athletes banned from the Olympics in Rio. And the, regardless of their test results. Mm -hmm. And the rationale for this is that there were these, um, three, I believe whistleblowers, primarily this one guy from Russia who came forward alleging that the FSB has kind of organized this mass doping procedure, basically for all Russian Olympic athletes, um, utilizing holes in the wall of, of, you know, bathroom stalls and, you know, giving fake urine samples and uh, tampering with the urine samples even after they've been um, taken and other kind of, all kinds of uh, allegations like this. And so based on this one guy's testimony and these other two people who say similar things but aren't uh, relied upon quite as much, the idea is that every Russian athlete is doping, or at least that's the allegation. So that's what the... I believe the IOC looked into, and they just gave their um, their result, their determination on the case, um, was it last week or so, um, on this idea that all, all the athletes should be banned. And so they kind of took the rational approach and said, no, that's ridiculous. Not all Ru Russian athletes should be banned. That's it. For one, it negates the principle of, you know, being innocent until proven guilty and as collective punishment and... In the long run, it would set a really bad precedent because there's absolutely no reason to it, and it can be just it can be abused to such a large extent. Now, when you when you just sit down, sit back, take a, a look at it, and think about it, it really is just completely ridiculous. First of all, you look at the testing that does go on because tests do get done. Um, you know, before every major event like the Olympics. And if you look at the statistics from previous years, for example, you look at um, all the different countries listed by the percentage of the athletes tested that test positive. I mean, Russia's on there. It's about halfway down the list of 40 countries that they include on this one list. And, um, I mean, ahead of them are several European countries that uh, have worse doping, um, several Middle Eastern countries and African and Russia is paired right along, right around the same percentage as Canada, for example. And so it's, I mean, it's well known that the, and accepted that athletes from every country dope. And so it's, it shouldn't come as a big shock. The big shock is this allegation that all Russians are doing it. So what do they do now? Well, they've been retesting samples taken from previous games like um, 2008 and 2012, I believe, um, Beijing and um, one other major games. I can't remember which one. And so they've been retesting. Which which was that? 
in London, 2012. In London. Yeah, that's it. So they've been t- retesting these samples and coming up with a whole bunch of new athletes that they've just discovered were, were doping for those games. Now, at first I was kind of suspicious of this. You think about it. Well, didn't they already test these samples? I mean, they say, they're saying they're being retested. Um, I think there's at least two possibilities here. One is that the game was rigged back then and that these certain of these samples that were tested were, you know, they were said to be clean when they weren't, um, implying that there was kind of mass corruption going on back then too. The other is that the testing has just gotten better in the last, you know, six to eight years since going back to at least 2008. Um, but I mean, there's so far, there hasn't been any indication from for the Russian athletes tested this time that everyone's doping. So, just based on evidence, it makes absolutely no sense to have the the entire Russian team banned from participating. And it, I guess that shows that there's been an ulterior motive to this whole thing, which should be pretty obvious. And that is just that the West is seeming is trying to go after Russia in any way it can, in any venue it can, and using the flimsiest of ev- of evidence. Yeah, pretty much. That's the uh, <clears throat> that's the long version. Uh, <laughs> the short version is um, that these people have lost their kind of minds and they're so desperate to make Russia look bad in whatever way they possibly can that they're willing to use all of their influence and leverage and blackmail, whatever else they can think of to uh, to get the World Athletics uh, Association or these uh, these individuals to um, to ban Russian uh, athletes so they can smear the Russian government. Of course, you notice that it's it's not just that the Russian athletes are doing it, but it's that it's a centralized mm-hmm. uh, plot or a central, centralized campaign by the Russian government to... Uh, to, to foist these drugs in all of their athletes because the Russian government is so fundamentally corrupt and stuff. That's the message, basically, they're trying to spread. Um, so, uh, duh, you know, Putin killed my baby. Putin doped my baby. Putin, you know, I don't kill Jesus. Uh, that kind of thing, you know, it's just, uh, yeah. But well, the lens still go to, to, to get people to that suggestion. That uh, you know, the fount of all evil is this one guy over there in the Kremlin. Are pretty. It's pretty staggering. I mean, it, it takes a lot of coordinating, a lot of people to bribe, a lot of persistent efforts. And in the end, well, this week, it's what the their their plan A apparently failed because the main overarching International Olympics Committee refused to do as requested yeah. by their Canadian and U.S. members, which was to simply ban any Russians from participating. But they were smart enough to realize that that probably was... That was the high bet. That was, well, that was coordinated as well, because it would have that would have backfired, because, I mean, everybody in the world, uh, even the extremely ignorant average member of the public, uh, would see that as being unfair. You can't spin that. I mean, that's, that's blowback then. So you don't want to... You know, I don't want to actually do that I mean, unless they're stupid enough to want to do that. But they obviously, it would have been a stupid move because if they had banned all of the Russian team, then people, a lot of people, at least those with a half-functioning brain, would have said, well, that's a bit rough, isn't it? Poor Russia. They don't want any sympathy for Russia. So anyway, we've got a call here. I'm going to go ahead and take it. Hi, do we have a caller on the line? 
Yeah, this is Kent from West Virginia. Hi, Kent. Yeah, um, um, I've been, of course, I've been watching this um, Russian thing, you know, here in the U.S. I mean, as a young kid, I uh, very little sports on television. The Olympics were a big thing, and they, they were griping and turned me off way back when. So I've never been anything, had anything to do with the Olympics. But so it was a very interesting and telling article in RT yesterday about uh, some people complaining that the American uh, Olympic uniforms, you know, that, that they walked into the stadium with at the opening ceremony, about yeah. how yeah. All, all the KGB had infiltrated. And because what it is is it's, you know, the Russian flag is also red, white, and blue, or blue, white, and red, or whatever. And they're horizontal stripes. And they were going on about how it, uh, it's, it looks more like the Russian flag. And I'm thinking that the plot, as you might believe, I think it's pretty, it goes even deeper than that. I'm thinking that the, the idea for the, uh, to make the uniforms resemble the Russian flag, they have pictures in this article of these athletes carrying the American flag. And this is this uh, gang, and and all they look like our uniforms, and they're carrying the American flag. And I don't know if I don't know if uh, maybe I'm stretching a little bit, but the, the symbolism for you know uh, the sort of the mind game thing that's going on. You know, we had a we had a situation here some years back. We had the World Series, and the Toronto team got in for the first time, and. And they had a big ceremony, you know, in the American Stadium, and they had the color guard, and they brought out the American, they brought out the American and Canadian flag, and then furled them, and they had the they had the maple leaf upside down, which it was no accident, you know. So these sort of little snide, uh, you know, these this is the kind of the games these childish people play. So I'm thinking that this plot to get keep the Russians out of this Rio Olympics has probably been going on for years, and it even incorporates yeah. the Design of the American uniforms. Probably. Probably. probably, probably better than that one. You got some good tunes going in the background there, Kent. Oh, yeah. That's a WWOV. I have to send that to you. I'll what send you, you a link to it. WWOV. It's yeah. uh, New Orleans. And uh, it's all day, all night music. Just the best in the world. I'll send a link to you. And I'll send mm-hmm. you a link to that, uh, art, that Russian State article about the uniforms, too. All right. And, uh, and so... All right. Well, that's all I have. All, all right. right. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Enjoy your okay. Sunday. See ya. Yeah. Um, yeah, it could be some snide thing where the designers were like, Teehee, we'll have them wear what looks like a Russian colors as they walk in. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. He was basically just saying that um, apparently it was hard hard to hear there for some folks, but um, Kent was just saying that more or less that this has been going on for a long time with there's precedence for this kind of smearing of Russia uh, in terms of Olympics or sporting events going back, you know, decades, so it's nothing new, so yeah, it probably fits with uh, with the idea that the US has pulled out their Cold War playbook, you know, they're just yeah. going through it uh, from A to Z, basically and they, in, in 1980 the well, former Soviet Union hosted the Olympics right? and they've been on a good footing, you know detente was formerly in the, in the air throughout the 70s 
And so it looked promising for, you know, let's just have an Olympics without any issues. Um, but I think Reagan had, was he, was he in power? Anyway, he was coming back. So neocons and so on were, were filling, filling the offices. And they were, they were gearing up for Cold War II. We're actually in Cold War III in quotes now because the 80s start, restarted the whole thing again. Um, and then the U.S. didn't, their athletes didn't go, I think. And then a number of other countries follow suit. I can't remember. Anyway, they made a stink out of it just because it was being hosted in Moscow. <clears throat> yeah. So other than Russia being, you know, the the bunch of druggies at the at the at the Olympics in, in Rio in Brazil, the other aspect of the Olympics uh, is that it's just a complete farce in this day and age of the state of the world that people would be um putting on such an event, especially somewhere like Brazil, you know, that isn't doing very well economically after the coup earlier on this year um, and the corruption and stuff in that country um, largely, partly anyway, inspired by by its neighbours far to the north um, there was a story it was a story that uh, they're putting the various athletic associations in, in other countries are warning their the competitors, the athletes going to Rio, the ones that have to uh, partake in water based uh, sports like sailing or I don't know maybe if there's triathlons or something like that, whatever, but they, well, they have to actually swim in the sea or be in the water in some way uh, that they should wear masks or something or try, uh, if at all possible, not to get any water in their mouths because the, that, that area just off Rio and that apparently you're meant to go to for lovely swimming holidays and stuff is um, is so polluted that they're in, in serious risk of getting some kind of horrible disease if they get any water from the sea into their mouth. So, um, and then of course there's the Zika virus, which uh, apparently the Russians even took this seriously. They redesigned <laughs> redesigned the the national the outfits that the athletes wear, Russian athletes wear, to make them kind of uh, more mosquito resistant, uh, longer sleeves, etc., because they might contract Zika, the Zika virus, and fall over on the spot. And there's a story that uh, can be just uh, mentioned in the chat room as well, that apparently the feds or some report that the, that the FBI or whoever are going around in the U.S. in certain places in the U.S. door to door asking people for um, urine samples uh, to test for the Zika virus. So that's the kind of madness that is, that's a, a tentative link between the Russia, the Olympics and a new plague coming upon us. So what do you say to that? I don't know. I just go, whatever. Well, yep. maybe if there isn't anything to add about the Olympic doping scandal, we can talk a little bit about the incredible events of uh, the Democratic National Convention of this past week and some of the things that have been leading up to it. Because not only has Putin been doping his athletes, he's been manipulating the American elections. Yes. From behind the street, behind the scenes, pulling strings. He's actually at the top of the pyramid, manipulating so, everything. Yeah, and really, you know, the story started, and I think we covered this a little bit last week, where uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, one of the heads of the uh, Democratic Party, 
was revealed to have um, put some very, um, basically, she assisted uh, Hillary Clinton in getting the nomination. And uh, this came out through WikiLeaks, and it was a huge deal uh, among people who actually cared, who considered themselves Democrats. She uh, she was forced to step down from her position. Uh, it became clear to everyone who was paying attention that Hillary Clinton should not have uh, won the nomination, and that Bernie Sanders, who was running against her, should have won. So in order to deflect from this major uh, scandal, they decide to, what you said, Harrison, blame Russia. It was Russia, so they say, who had hacked the emails, who had made them available to WikiLeaks, presumably, in order to support their man for the nomination of President Donald Trump. Mm. And, of course, it it hasn't helped that narrative uh, at all to hear Donald Trump actually make semi-reasonable statements in the news about um, not wanting to support uh, countries that weren't paying their bills, uh, their NATO bills. So... Uh, basically, he said that earlier in the week, and everyone jumped down his throat. And he made a couple of other comments that uh, just a few days ago, he, he said that he thought Putin was a, a better leader than Obama. And of course, you know, half, half the half the, uh, the bought and paid for media in the country have, have been absolutely beyond themselves going nuts hearing these types of things. Burst, burst and, a blood vessel in their brains. Easily, <clears throat> so um, so I have a question though on that on that point. Um, mm-hmm. So Russia is accused of hacking. Putin himself is accused of hacking with his judo hacking skills. <laughs> he uh, got these emails and he released them. He sent them from Putin at gov.ru to uh, to some uh, Bernie Sanders supporters or something, or maybe to Trump. Uh, anyway. And released these emails, and then he's accused of so. Well, this is what they say, um, and therefore Putin and Russia, in general, is accused of subverting uh, democracy in America, in the U.S. So, how? What does that mean, democracy in America? Then, because by releasing those emails. What he, what Putin himself exposed in the U.S. was that the Democratic Democratic Party had been um, using dirty tactics and very undemocratic and illegal uh, methods to get rid of Sanders. So that equals undermining democracy in America. Yeah, but Joe, you're you're applying reason and logic to all of this. But it's not very deep reason or logic. Like I mean, it's really not very no. complicated. No. You know, if if mm-hmm. if I stand up and and expose someone as a liar, mm-hmm. can they turn around and say you're undermining my integrity by exposing me as a liar? Is that reasonable? Well, the, the hope is anybody? that anybody. 
the hope is that you can hear a pin drop. The, yeah, these arguments will bypass any kind of uh, mm-hmm. reasonable, rational approach to looking at the whole thing, and short circuit it and go right to Putin KGB. Yeah. Surely Russia was supporting democracy in America by exposing the fact that the Democrats were 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 subverting the democratic process. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I stand up and I say, look, your, democracy, your democratic process here is fundamentally flawed and some of the major elements within your democratic process are lying and using uh, dirty tactics to, to, to win an election when they shouldn't have, if I stand up and say that, surely I am supporting democratic, uh, the democratic principle. I'm defending democracy. You know, I'd be curious in, think, in finding no. out exactly what percentage... Like to do a massive poll, an accurate poll to see what Americans really think, because I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a large segment of the population that the propaganda doesn't actually work on, at least not in the way that's intended, because I think that the the people at the top of the American food chain are more rabidly anti-Russian than probably just the average person on the street, and that mm. so you find out the average American finds out that. Russia hacked the DNC. Well, I think that there's going to be a lot of people as a result of that that kind of maybe not as eloquently or, um, you know, well thought through th- actually kind of feel that, that, oh, well, <laughs> hacking is kind of cool and, uh, I f- and the Democrats are totally corrupt. Oh, well, then, then it, the, there's this feeling that it's kind of even a good thing that Russia did it. And same thing with, with Trump and Putin. I mean, um, I think a lot of people, even if they buy into a lot of the anti-Russian propaganda, still kind of have, have this admiration for Putin in a way that he's kind of this, they see him as this tough guy, um, leader who, like, no nonsense, right. and, and like, even if they think he's, even if they do think he's a dictator, they still kind of admire him, because that's what they want in a guy like Trump, right? And so, yes. so all of this, all of these exposés that are, I mean, probably totally false, all of them, just end up working against the um, like the agenda of what the the opinion makers want to do. At least that's what that's what I'd guess. Yeah, that, that that's probably how it'll play out. How does the saying go? Patriotism is the, the last refuge of scoundrels. They're banking on this here. So in the aftermath of Hillary's formal nomination, um, a whole bunch of Others then gave speeches. Uh, there was Leon Panetta, former CIA director. Uh, Michelle Obama, I don't think she mentioned this issue. Uh, the President Obama uh, and others. And they all mentioned, at least touched on this obliquely. And they're, they're, they were banking on castigating Trump as being unpatriotic by by referring to this issue and implying that Trump is in bed with Putin right. to subvert our great country. So it's, it's the playing the Patriot card. Uh, well, Leon Panetta was interesting. He spoke at the democratic uh, convention and he couldn't speak for the first uh, 20 seconds or more or 20 or 30 seconds because a large segment of the, of the, of the attendees were all shouting no more war at him, no more <laughs> war very loudly. And he couldn't actually speak because they're all shouting no more war. 
And then if, as soon as he was able to speak, uh, he immediately launched into uh, how Russia was uh, basically uh, evil. And that was the first thing he said. So that was the antidote uh, to everybody shouting no more war. Uh, he said, Russia's evil, um, by the way. And the, there's another thing, a circular, our memo sent around among uh, you know Democratic Party members or whatever, or supporters in the in the audience at the convention, uh, where they had a list of, uh, it was a serious problem for them because there's an awful lot of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters there. And they were the ones who were all shouting uh, lots of different things, not very nice towards uh, Hillary and et cetera. But one of them was no more war. Um, and so they sent around a memo, the Hillary supporters sent around a memo to all the people in the audience <clears throat> saying, um, to all the supporters in the audience saying, giving them a list of responses to the chants uh, that, that were coming from the Sanders, meaning from the Sanders supporters, supposedly. Um, and one of them, the response to no more war was, well, this was the response to, to several of the chants, uh, but one, one response that they were to give to the no more war chant from the Sanders supporters was uh, USA, USA. Oh, <laughs> very very imaginative, but it was just a shout USA, USA. So it's like, that's the opposite thing. That's, that's what I was thinking. It should be in the dictionary, you know, under uh, the antonym for... For, for no more war should just be USA, you know, because that's according to the Democratic Party, which is traditionally the uh, the anti-war party uh-huh. in America. Uh, they say that the perfect repost to someone saying no more war is to shout, America, America. <laughs> yeah. Well, so America yeah, equals the opposite of no more war. It's another one of those kind of things that that's designed to, uh, assist people in shutting their brains off. But, uh, you know, while you had all of those Bernie supporters speaking out and, uh, and chanting these things, uh, you had a good many of them. I think uh, a lot of the delegates from Washington and Oregon actually walk out at some point, which was a part of the story there that uh, apparently wasn't covered well by the major news at all. At the mm. same time, you had a lot of people uh, Bernie supporters and people who weren't inside the convention in these kind of free speech zones, which looked more like cages uh, outside of the uh, the arena there, uh, demonstrating. And uh, you had some people who were uh, downright absolutely enraged and furious and, and speaking out about it and mm-hmm. kind of realizing on a on a visceral tangi- tangible level how on top of the injustice of getting uh, Hillary the nomination uh, was the serious prospect of Hillary getting into office and being responsible for taking the country into major war with Russia and uh, mm-hmm. and China and perhaps other countries so there's a, a clear kind of split uh, going on there. You have a bunch of people who seem to be uh, awake to the reality of, of the horror that they were witnessing um, and the fact that Bernie Sanders basically, through the whole movement he had begun several months ago under the bus, and, um, and then you have a whole other group of people who are suffering this extreme cognitive dissonance you know, getting emotional, listening to the speeches, you know, treating these uh, these idiots like gods, 
in much the same way they did when Obama was elected eight years ago, seven years ago. So uh, we're going to see some very interesting developments, I think. Uh, Jill Stein, the Green Party nominee, you know, she offered to allow Bernie Sanders to take her place as the nominee for president. Very smart lady saying a bunch of uh, very sensible things on the subject of war and the economy. But he he chose not to go that route. And uh, much to the chagrin and, and disappointment of, of a lot of people. So uh, a lot of emotions and, uh, and a lot of turmoil at the DNC convention, despite all of the, uh, the big blue and red and white balloons at the end of the final night. Mm-hmm. Um, on the uh, Trump-Putin axis of evil, they, they've, they've obviously been trying to project, project I suppose is the word, a, a fraternity between the two for some time now. We've had this thing where they said that Trump says good things about Putin and Putin is supposed to return the favor and, you know, said favorable things about Donald Trump. <clears throat> of course, Putin was then, he's, he has long since clarified, uh, no, that's not what I said. It was taken out of context and so on. But in, in the meantime, this week, I've seen two major lengthy articles, one in the Washington Post and the other in the British Guardian, two liberal outlets of ill repute, um, try to flesh out this, this murky relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And I kid you not, the, the evidence they have for a close bond slash business relationship slash outright scheming between the two leaders, or excuse me, one leader and one pretender, is the fact that Donald Trump did business dealings with a Ukrainian oligarch who is very much in with Western oligarchs, so he's on the opposite side of the divide. But anyway, people reading that won't have a clue who he is. I think it was Firtash, Dmitry Firtash. The second piece of evidence is that Donald Trump said nice things about the Russian entry in a beauty pageant about 10 years ago. Wow, that's damning. Um, <clears throat> oh, that's so, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that could go all the way to the top to Putin. The third piece of evidence is that the former U.S. general, is it Alexander Flynn or Michael Flynn? Michael Flynn. Mm-hmm. He's been in the news a bit because he said some things that are a little bit um, unpatriotic, let's say. He's, he's supposedly an advisor slash friend to, Putin, uh, to Trump. And one time, several years ago, Flynn was seated just two places away from Putin at some G20 convention, I don't know what, somewhere in the world, just two places away. Think about that. Mm. Does that not reveal Something. a conspiracy between Trump and Putin? I mean, I would honestly, say so. it, yeah. And then in the in the mid eighties, uh, apparently Trump tried to you know open some businesses in the Soviet Union. That was another thing that they uh-huh. were. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, it almost seems unfair <clears throat> that to us, to, to me, it seems unfair. It's 
it's like we're talking about here. We're we're supposed to be analyzing the statements of, or we are analyzing the statements of Western politicians, presidents, whatever, and the media. You know, uh, prestigious um, uh, media publications in the U.S., like the you know the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. But uh, uh, as we're doing that, it sounds like we're making fun of a bunch of, uh, you know. Uh, idiots, you know, unfairly making yeah. fun of a bunch of idiots. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the way we're talking here. I mean, we're, 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 we're lampooning some of the patently ludicrous and hysterical things that they say as if they're not in their right minds. It's, it's like making fun of a crazy person. Yeah. So we should be ashamed of ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Or a fifth grader. We're, we're the equivalent of like, you know, adults that uh, bully <laughs> young kids yeah exactly it's not fair except these kids ashamed. are quite dangerous is the only problem I'm, I'm, I'll give us a, an out here because uh, these are very dangerous children uh, they're very dangerous pathological fifth graders with lots of weapons including nuclear weapons uh-huh. so um, they can't be seen as normal children so it's not a good analogy um, thank you Joe <laughs> so carry, carry on lampooning Alan just one thing here, Lavrov's response when asked um, about the Russian connection to these DNC email hack, <laughs> he just said, uh, what did he say? I, I don't want my to response, use... My response would... I don't want to use four-letter words. Don't, yes, I don't want to use a four-letter word. That's it. That's the Russian statement <laughs> on this. But it's the same thing. They're like... If we we can't give this a response because it's so ridiculous. I wouldn't I wouldn't lower myself, yeah. But uh, obviously we have to. So yeah, I don't know. Um, what do you say about the DNC? I don't know. Bill Clinton up there saying stuff. I mean, people. It's it's people are picking up on this. I mean, not just us. I mean, we sit around and watch this stuff and look at it and have done for years and stuff. But the the hysteria and the lies and the nonsense coming out of the Western press. It has got so bad that it's very easy for the average person now to to just go WTF, you know, at so many statements, uh, including stuff that's going on at the at the D that was going on at the DNC, you know. Um, there was the uh, what one am I thinking of? Um, oh yeah, Bill Clinton got up. I mean, that guy, something's gone wrong. I mean, I think he, he turned vegan or vegetarian not so long ago, mm-hmm. but then he was kind of was, wasn't or something, but whatever he's been eating has been, has been having a bad effect on him because the guy looks like he should be in an old person's home, you know, dribbling on his chin and praying for a happy death, you know, because he, he doesn't look good and he fell asleep. Uh, he couldn't even stay awake for, you know, listening to his lovely wife's um, uh, speech. And he also, um, when he made his own, gave his own talk, he he said to, he made an appeal to Muslims saying, you know, Muslims, uh, we want you here. Uh, you can stay, but <laughs> join us and let's win together. Uh, you know, so you're allowed to stay as long as you help us win. And he's talking to Muslims in America. This, these are Americans who simply subscribe to the Muslim faith. Mm-hmm. And he's basically, you know, defining them or describing them as if they were 
recent immigrants or something um, who now were going to be given a choice of, you know, you're with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, you have to get out. Like, can you imagine what a Muslim in America actually thought about that a person who was maybe has been in America for a couple of hundred years and was just a Muslim? And they're thinking, is he talking to me? What's he, ta- what's he talking about? Why is he saying that? What is, who is that person? What the heck? You know, just, yeah. def- and, and there are a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook and stuff actually pointed that out, you know, I mean, because it was so egregious, uh, uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of his comments. But it just shows how detached these people are then, you know, I mean, Clinton being an establishment figure. And of course, we talked about, you know, uh, what do you call him? Um, the guy I meant, you mentioned previously, uh, Panetta. Panetta, you know, uh, I mean, they just stand up there and there are people shouting, you're a war criminal, no more war, and they just laugh and carry on as if everything's normal. And then they come out with ridiculous statements that alienate entire section of the population of Americans, you know, who are yeah. true blue Americans, basically, for uh, the only thing is that they just don't, they're not Christian. And I don't know. It's just... So we've got to the point where it was always going to go it's a runoff between Trump and Clinton. Um, there could be a surprise yet. There is a third candidate. Who? Did you not hear about the third candidate? Not really, I wonder no. wonder why. Because <laughs> three people are running for president. Do you not know there's three people running for president? Uh, well, I thought... What would it give you that impression? That I thought many two? people... I thought many people could run, but I only, you only hear of two ever. No. Who's the third uh, the Green Party candidate. Jill Stein. Uh, no. Uh, That's her, no? Yeah. I don't remember her name. Mm-hmm. Is that her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's not surprising that anybody uh, would think that there was only two people eligible for the presidency. Well, there's actually a fourth, too. And of course. Yeah. Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party. Yeah, you, right. you can have any number, but what I mean is there'll be two in the media that you'll only ever hear about, really. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I probably should stay out of predictions. I don't have a good track record, but uh, I think I think as things are, Trump would win the popular vote. And they'll have to, mm-hmm. if they don't want him in, I'm guessing the establishment doesn't, they're going to have to swing it. Well, really? I don't know. I think in their wishful thinking, will they not swing it enough? Well, I don't know. That's that's you know maybe, but there's no point. In well, apparently, getting that kind of speculation. The, but after the DNC convention, uh, he, he went to lead uh, yeah. the the popular kind of sentiment by three, two or three percentage points. I think so. Now mm. Reuters or whoever it was that took the poll is. You know, needs to recalibrate the way they're taking the poll, in, in order to, in order to reflect better on Hillary, or, or so the story goes. Yeah. Um, but uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe I reckon maybe the elites. I reckon it'll be a fifty-fifty. You know, again, yeah. or somewhere around that. You know, as usual, because I think there is quite a lot of people in America who are you know kind of the bleeding heart liberal types, um, <clears throat> who are who have bought the whole Trump is so evil type thing and I hate his his racism and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, and and a lot of people who don't see Hillary for what she is, 
Um, but then there's a lot of people who do. So it's people who do have a bit of awareness. Well, it's, it's a big mix, I think. There's people, there's the right-wing people who think Trump is our man because he's just independent. He's not an establishment figure. He's an independent kind of guy, and he'll make America great again. And there are people who are sick of you know the dynasty, the Clinton-Bush dynasty kind of thing, and Obama and stuff, and they want this new maverick. So there's a, probably a big section of people who want that who aren't don't really know a lot about what's going on, but know enough to say we need somebody different. Uh, but then there's an equal number, equally large number of people who, <clears throat> are, like I said, are scared <clears throat> of Trump uh, and what he says and the kind of rhetoric he comes out with, uh, which is a bit extremist and stuff. So those lefty-leaning people will all be forced to to, to vote for Hillary. And I th- I wouldn't be surprised if it's roughly, you know, based on uh, uh, based on the number of people who will actually vote, which certainly probably, I, I expect it wouldn't be a very high turnout. Uh, but the number of people who do actually vote would probably be closely split down the middle. Because, I mean, the best thing is, uh, third, the best thing for everybody to do, obviously, is uh, for a majority of people to do is to vote for a third party candidate or not vote at all. Um but of the people who will actually vote who still believe in democracy in America, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's kind of split along those lines. And it wouldn't be a surprise if we had another election result mm-hmm. in the West where it was 58 to 52 to 48 or 51 to 49 or 50.5 to... Basically, yeah. that's pretty much the way they all go for some reason. Apparently, everybody in Western countries on any issue from mm. electing a president or a prime minister to voting for independence to voting for gay, whatever, well, not gay, gay, um, gay rights, but uh, anything political. Apparently, it's always uh, countries divided, you know, mm. which is a problem for the people. It's the people are the problem, basically. You're all divided. You can't agree. Half of you want this and half of you want the other. You know, I mean, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. You need some kind of strong leadership. You need leaders, basically, to sort you out because you just can't decide among yourselves. At which point the Supreme Court will decide for them. Right. That's a narrative. So it's always a good idea if you're going to, I mean, if there are rigging elections, then, yeah, it would always be a good idea to rig elections <clears throat> along the lines of more or less 50-50 with giving the extra 1% or 2% to the person you want to win. Well, let's move on to another topic. Any last words on the Torky. on the DNC? <laughs> yeah. What about Torkey? Torkey? Oh, Turkey. Torkey is the <laughs> Torkey. It's the Irish for Turkey. <laughs> ah, no, Torkey. Go on. Yes. What's what's happening in Turkey? Well, okay. Well, since the last time we talked, um, well, what's been new? There have been a few other um, allegations coming out from either kind of official Turkish newspapers tied to the government or government officials um, that certain U.S. persons and NATO persons were involved in the coup. So I think they've named by now two or three, or two two generals, I think, and one CIA agent. There was this one CIA guy, well, so-called ex-CIA, who was apparently in Turkey that night in Istanbul and in a organizing this meeting of a whole bunch of people in a hotel and they were kind of holed up in this kind of conference room for that night. And so some people in the Turkish media, some journalists are saying that this was, you know, they've got their sources that say he was basically running the coup from there. Um, Erdogan has said 
you know, after what, two weeks of pretty much exclusively blaming Gulen in Pennsylvania, he has said that Gulen is pretty much just a puppet and that there is a mastermind behind Gulen. And so mm. we wonder who that could be. Of course, it's a, in all likelihood, a veiled reference to the CIA because Gulen has been in bed with the CIA for the last 20 years, if not longer. Oh, yeah. When he, yeah, yeah, when he came to the States. <clears throat> He's yeah, he came, when he came to the States, I think, in 1998, and then he stayed there for a while. And when he finally got his kind of permanent, permanent residency, two of the people that wrote letters on, on his behalf were CIA agents, one being Graham Fuller, um, mm. who was pr one of the guys that was basically responsible for Iran-Contra. He wrote an, an mm. infamous memo um, advising, basically, the, the arms sales to Iran back in the 80s. He's also the guy, what his, his, um, what's the daughter. relationship? Yeah, his daughter is married his to daughter the uncle. His daughter was married to the uncle of the Boston Bombers, and the uncle of the Boston Bombers stayed in his house. And, mm -hmm. and what do you call him, his house? So, nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing to see there. And Graham Fuller, he's been involved with the CIA's operation to basically destabilize the Caucasus in Central Asia in order to destabilize Russia for the past 20 years. It was essentially his idea with a bunch of other people to, to use this Gulen movement um, for that purpose. Also, in just last night, there was a, a kind of something, something big happened at Interlik Air Base, the NATO-US Air Base in Turkey. A uh, whole bunch of uh, riot police trucks and armed soldiers kind of surrounded the place, blocked entry in and out. They, Go ahead. They said seven thousand of them. Yeah, yeah seven thousand troops. And there was, an inspection. Yeah, the Turkish government said it was for a security inspection, routine, nothing to see here. Um, and that's We're checking the toilets. Pretty much all they've said about it. Sure, so clean. who knows what was going on there? Um, what else? Well, one little important development. Erdogan said he wants the. Um, Turk, the main Turkish intelligence body, the MIT, and the military chief, chief of staff from now on to report directly to him, mm -hmm. i.e. they didn't before. <laughs> well, that's, that's the kind of important point uh, about this coup because for me, the coup shows that Erdogan and his friends, his party, his ministers, whatever, uh, were not in control or not in full control of Turkey. Not because it was a coup necessarily or not primarily because it was a coup, but primarily because of what he has done afterwards, which is effectively remove from their position, move, remove 60,000 people across the military <clears throat> politics uh, the um, media. Just, the justice system, the media, universities, etc. Remove all those from their positions. Uh, the fact that he would feel the need to do that, and I'm assuming here that he's not just completely crazy and removing people who did nothing. The fact that he would feel the need or see the need, and I'm assuming also that the, he had these people, a lot of these people identified beforehand. The fact that he would feel the need to do that. Uh, suggests strongly that previous, prior to the coup, he was not fully or even largely in control of Turkey, of the country, of the government, of the military, and what it did or did not do. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm 
Is that a reasonable conclusion? Yeah. So we then have to reconsider or take a second look at all of the things that have happened over the past year or two, particularly in Syria. as concerns Syria and in Turkey, internal to Turkey, with the Kurds, with ISIS, with Syria, etc. To look at all that again uh, with, with, with new eyes, effectively, and wonder to ourselves, well, to what extent was Erdogan in, you know, doing what they claimed he was doing, or to what extent was he in control of anything that was happening? Um, it was an interesting comment by, in, in, in post-coup by uh, the U.S. National Intelligence Director, James Clapper. He said um, last Thursday that the purges, the removal of these people, <clears throat> were harming the fight against Daesh in Syria and Iraq. Why? Because they were stripping away key Turkish officers who had worked closely with the United States. <laughs> so Erdogan is getting rid of key officers who are working, intelligence officers who have for a long time been working with the United States on the ISIS situation. We know that the U.S. has been doing virtually nothing on the ISIS situation, or relatively nothing, comparatively nothing on the ISIS situation, uh, that in fact ISIS is in Syria uh, to serve a particular purpose, which is to remove Assad, which the US has been screaming about for years now. So the question then is, if we can reasonably assume that the US wasn't too concerned about ISIS, and in fact was quite happy about them attempting to overthrow Assad, which they've wanted to achieve for a long time, and now... Clapper says that there were key intelligence personnel in Turkey working with the U.S. on ISIS. What were they doing? Well, presumably they were facilitating the transfer of jihadis back and forth to Syria from Turkey. And these were people who were working with the U.S. and presumably not necessarily with Erdogan because he just kicked them all out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything needs to be revisited. Right, uh, including terror attacks inside Turkey. Yep. Uh, the most recent one, which was that bombing in an airport, which happened not too long after the bombing in uh, Brussels airport, I think, or vice versa, one or the other. But it's yeah. uh, interesting that, you know, there's jihadis running around both Turkey and Euro and Western Europe in the airports and blowing things up. Um, and also the situation with the Kurds in terms of who was pushing for um, a, a strong reaction by inside Turkey against the Kurds. Well, maybe we're going too far on that one, but uh, because, of course, the Kurds have for a long time been closely aligned or supported by the U.S., but the U.S. only supports people because it's in some way valuable to them mm-hmm. as a leverage, as a tool, you know, so the Kurds would be very wise to not, uh, to not place any faith in, in the U S or any support they get from the U S but also, um, surprisingly Russia, uh, has been supporting the Kurds as well, uh, in terms of their desire for, uh, some kind of an autom- autonomous region. Uh, and in fact, I think just last March, uh, Russia, 
uh, Putin officially came out and said that the, the Russia supported the creation of a Kurdish autonomous zone in the kind of northern area of Syria. And they were, you know, they were happy for the Kurds to move across from Iraq and kind of across along the Turkish border. Uh, and this was around the time, this was happening around the time that uh, someone shot down the, the Russian jet. And at the same time as the Russians set up their no-fly zone, which was presumably to stop someone from bombing the Kurds that were moving into Syria. And uh, because the Kurds moving into Syria along the Turkish border was a way to stop ISIS from coming and going in uh, through Turkey. Mm -hmm. And um, Russia didn't want anybody to be bombing them. So they set up a no-fly zone. So in the middle of this, you have, you know, the U.S. just stirring things up left, right, and center, supporting ISIS, dropping weapons to ISIS, supporting the Kurds. Who know. who sent in a Turkish battalion into northern Iraq just before Christmas? Right. At the time, we reported and thought, Erdogan's nuts. Yeah. Why the hell? What, this is so blatant. Yeah. Of course it is. It's blatant. It's made to make him suffer as well and to generally inflame the entire situation. Mm -hmm. It's then Baghdad's like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Get out. And they're like, no. Because the Americans stay. are looking at this. The Russians have set up a cooperative, uh, literally an office in Baghdad that will coordinate Iranian, Baghdadi, Syrian, and Jordanian, I believe, actions in the fight against ISIS. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at this thinking, okay, well, this can't grow. In fact, we need to smash any burgeoning alliance here. And then in the middle of all this crazy things happen, shooting down a Russian jet, sending a battalion into northern Iraq. And it, I get, some, of our, some of our reporting on this was, I mean, I'm ashamed now that we came down so hard and fast simply. on It's all Erdogan. He's evil. He's doing these crazy well, things. Well, speak for yourself. Speak, no, yeah. You, you call it right with the whole Russian shootdown. I was the only one to call that in the entire world that I know of. Everybody's like, evil Erdogan. And I was like, how many on a minute? Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Well, I got a question for you guys. Shooting my own horn. Yes, I am. I got a question. So uh, right now, as we speak, I think, uh, there's a three- or four-star general being sent from the U.S. to Turkey to talk to his counterpart in Turkey uh, about the, presumably about the accusations of the coup and the status of uh, Encirclic uh, base in Turkey. What do you think he's saying to his counterpart? Is he... Want a the, cookie? What's Who, that? the American guy? The American guy, the general. He's saying you want a freedom cookie. A freedom cookie? He brought cookie. a bag of cookies, yeah. Um, I don't know what he's saying, um, obviously, but... Uh, the last thing I heard about in Cerdic Air, Air Base and the nine, supposedly 90 nukes that are American nukes that are stashed away there um, was that Erdogan, Erdogan or someone in his government, Erdogan himself, I think, said, uh, give us Gulen and we'll, we'll uh, let you to continue to have access to your nukes, mm -hmm. uh, or i.e. that Air Base. Um, but then with this more recent thing that... Um, Harrison mentioned uh, Erdogan saying that Gulen is the, the puppet of a deeper conspiracy or controllers behind him. Well, yeah, good job. I, mean, maybe, I hope Erdogan didn't just figure that out because it was freaking obvious. Have you ever seen this guy? Like, he's not really, he's not the mastermind. Uh, he's not controlling anything necessarily. The guy is obviously a puppet for effectively the CIA and his network of schools 
and institutions and institutes, etc., in, in, in Turkey and in different places, are a perfect vehicle for the CIA to 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 work their magic within various countries from the kind of at a grassroots level, you know. So of course he's being used. The U.S. doesn't host someone like that and and allow them basically free reign to do whatever they want in America without getting something serious in return. And it's access to his network of people, you know, his his structure because it takes a long time to set up that kind of structure. And Gulen had done it already. So the CIA just stepped in and said, thanks very much, we'll take that. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll direct it from here on, you know. And um, so, yeah. Uh, but like I said, I mean, you don't... For me, the, the, that fact that that Erdogan and, and co are getting rid of that many people just says the guy was obviously, I would say, almost had, had very little influence effectively on anything of, of major importance within Turkey that Turkey did or didn't do domestically even uh, and, and definitely in terms of foreign policy. Erdogan's like, <clears throat> he has very little say basically. Stuff happens and he maybe gets a memo after the fact, hey, did you know this happened? Did you know this happened? Did you know we sent troops in here? Did you know we did this? Do you know we're doing this? And he just got increasingly pissed off at it, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and wanted to do something about it. And this is the only way he can do something about it, which is to take back control of of Turkey from this foreign installation, effectively, and uh, I think it's it's a good idea, you know, as long as he can keep his head and not go too nuts. So, but even the whole idea of him turning into turning it, you know, into some kind of radical Islamist haven or something, turning Turkey kind of jihadi, basically, or making an extreme, making it like Saudi Arabia, is nonsense, you know, because that's never what he's espoused. He basically just, um, I mean, he's it's been he's been smeared in that way, but I don't think that's. It something that uh, Erdogan ever wanted. He's not an extreme. He's not like a, he's not uh, a Saudi royal, you know. Um, He's more of like a Ramzan. Well, he could be like Mm -hmm. approaching the Ramzan Kadyrov level, like being an an Islamist leader, but not a a radical jihadi like the Saudis. Right. Uh, But of course, he'd be pitched that way and and presented that way to the Western media because, you know, uh, you want to smear someone these days, call them a, a radical... Muslim, except if you're Saudi. <laughs> That's the good radical Islam. Well, just, just one one comment on something you said earlier, Joe, about the, the troops that went into Iraq from Turkey. One of the first guys that was that lost his position and I think was detained was the military commander in charge of the Iraqi and Syrian borders. He was one of the right. first people to go, and presumably, I'm pretty sure that was one of the guys that was tight with NATO, that the mm-hmm. that what's his name was talking about. So uh, I just wanted to throw that in there as a detail. Yeah. So yeah, it's all kind of uh, gone pear shaped for U.S. policy in the Middle East, um, and the uh, the pros the prospect of a of a kind of Russian Turkish triangular alliance, Russian-Turkish-Iranian alliance uh, in that region would give them some, some pretty serious clout if you think about Russian-Turkish-Syrian-Iranian and even Iraqi. Once, I mean, if you get to that point, it's done. You know, I mean, if those people are all on the same page in terms of, in terms of you know, strategy, let's, let's screw over NATO at, at every opportunity, it really is done for them in the Middle East. I mean, the Saudis are going to have to compete. I mean, the, the, the Gulf states are just, you know, they have no no choice at that point, you know. Um, 
So it's looking pretty bad. This is it's getting near the uh, the death now, really. I mean, I don't want to be too hopeful, but I mean, because hopes, you know, not a good idea. But um, they're still going to they still have the same old card to play. This is the era of terror. Yeah. And we'll have more and more of it. Um, do we want to move on to yeah. some of the recent terror? I mean, well, we, first, I think we asked. Oh, sorry, you're going. Yeah, first, let's, I just want to say a little bit about Syria, what's going on right now, mm-hmm. because okay, good. The, right now, the, the Syrian Arab army um, cut off, basically encircled the, the rebels in East Aleppo. Now, if you look, if you looked at a map beforehand, there was kind of like this yin yang thing going on, where the rebels had this um, supply line going around from the west to the north to the northeast, and then the the Syrian Arab Army had all the region like east of that and 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 south. Now, there's the important kind of supply line has been cut off by the by the Syrians, and so East Aleppo is basically cut off and under siege. And so what happened in the last couple of days is that the Russians announced their kind of major humanitarian operation because the city is under siege. <clears throat> they opened four humanitarian corridors, three for civilians to leave and then one for militants to leave. Now, um, what's happening in the Western media and from, and from Western officials, especially the Americans there, and, well, the media is going crazy too. They're having a field day with this. But they're, it's like they're trying really hard, not quite getting the job done because they're, it's just like, what can you do with a situation like this? All, they, all that they're doing right now is they're calling it like so-called humanitarian corridors. John Kerry is saying it looks like a ruse, like these humanitarian corridors are just being set up um, as some kind of propaganda campaign. And apparently the, the rebels are calling them death corridors. And what what they're really set up for is so that, the, yeah, so that the, the the civilians will leave, and then the Syrian army will just mow them down. And the civilians don't want to leave because they they don't trust Assad, and um, the Russians are just um, totally complicit in this massive uh, propaganda campaign. And that's what the media are saying. What's really going on is exactly what the Russians said was going on. They opened these four corridors. People can leave. The problem is that the rebels won't let the majority of the people living there leave. They're keeping them hostage, essentially, and that's what's been going on for the past four years. Now, um, a couple other things about these corridors. First of all, some, like 170 in the first day, civilians did manage to leave, mostly women and children. Of course, the men get kept behind primarily because uh, they're better hostages and they can be you know, converted into rebels if, they, um, if they're able to do that. And 70 militants leave too, because this is one of the things that uh, the Assad government has done for the entire war, is offered full amnesty. So for any militants willing to put down their arms, they receive full amnesty. And of course, the the West hates this because it shows that Assad is not uh, this radical evil dictator, and that he primarily wants peace, and that he's willing to do this. And he has done it repeatedly, and and hundreds, thousands of militants have followed him up on this offer. So 70 of these guys even t- took the amnesty. Now, on top of that, the Russians also um, left that corridor open for militants who didn't want amnesty. They can leave with their own personal arms, their weapons, um, none of the heavy weaponry, and they can leave to go to another area of Syria. 
Now, they, so they, the Russians and the Syrians have pretty much covered all bases here in order to kind of, because they know that the, they know the media response and the response from their enemies in the West, that they're going to try to pick any angle of this and, and um, just exploit it. So they've pretty much covered all angles by offering humanitarian aid, offering these humanitarian corridors, offering amnesty to militants, and even offering the militants to leave and just go elsewhere and continue fighting except um, that's not enough for the West because it is a horrible thing to offer for these humanitarian corridors. Um, apparent, but um, it's not a bad thing when the U.S. does it because the, the West did the same thing in Iraq with Ramadi and there was no media outcry about what was going on there. You even have Iraqi um, soldiers and generals or commanders saying that, oh, well, we're not really worried about the civilians right now. You know, they can take care of themselves. We're just focusing on killing the, um, the terrorists. Now, if Assad were to say something like that, it would be a totally different story in the West, and he would be completely eviscerated for saying that, because that you know, just feeds into the image that Assad is this brutal dictator. They're saying that the that the, there's no humanitarian sentiment whatsoever in what's going on here. That the 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 Syrians and the and the Russians just want to kill the rebels, and they don't care about the people. Um, it's just everything that you're hearing in the West about this situation in Aleppo is totally wrong, and. Um, in one of the articles that we've got on SOT, um, can't remember which one, but maybe I'll find the link. The, the, in the comment, there's a link to the Twitter page of this German journalist, uh, Julian Ropke, who uh, writes for Bild magazine. And he's just the slimiest guy. If you want to see the kind of propaganda that it just exemplifies the Western approach, just go to his Twitter page and, and look at what he's got there. It's just, it's funny on one hand, but on the other, it's kind of just really sickening to see how everything is twisted. Mm -hmm. These people pretend to, they're the ones that pretend to be humanitarians. They're the ones that are pretending to be on the side of the people in Aleppo. And at the same time, while they're saying all these things, they are the ones support, like pushing for these people to be, Held host continue to be held hostage by the rebels to be killed, to be tortured, to be killed in airstrikes, whatever they 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 are essentially um, through their humanitarian statements and concerns dooming these people to a horrible existence, and it's just it's it's really sick to see how completely it's well it's just that psych psychopathic projection where what you are actually doing is what you you know you you accuse your enemy of doing yeah. and so everything that they're saying about the russians and the syrians is what they themselves are doing and what the rebels are doing so well in parallel to this story in aleppo uh continue to be stories about how the russians and the syrians have been bombing the last children's <laughs> hospital uh, in, in various regions of, of Aleppo and, and surrounding areas. And, um, you, know, it, you know, it reminded me a lot of the run-up to the first war against Iraq where uh, a young girl went before this uh, Human Rights Commission, I forget what its name is, and basically said that the Iraqi soldiers were tearing babies out from the incubators and 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 leaving them to die, where it was later she revealed. That, What's that? She, that was to uh, I think a Senate. Uh, yeah. it was actually in uh, in the U.S. Congress or in, in the Senate, basically, where she spoke to 
U.S. politicians directly. Right. And, um, and so it later was revealed that she was like the daughter of some Kuwaiti ambassador or something and, and right. was kind of coached into doing this by a mm -hmm. public relations firm in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it, it's, it's the same story again and again. And, uh, you know, playing on the sympathies of, of anyone who would hate to see a children's hospital get bombed, uh, the Western media yeah. is shamelessly uh, repeating these, these false stories about Russia bombing, yet again, the very last children's hospital in and around uh, Aleppo. While they bomb civilians deliberately yeah. in revenge attacks. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Yeah, the French uh, took part in a revenge attack. Revenge bombing, I think they didn't call it that, but that's apparently what it was. But of course, it wasn't even that, really. Um, for the July 14th uh, massacre in, in Nice, the truck massacre, uh, shortly after that, French planes took part in a, in a bombing raid in Syria where they killed something like 275 civilians or something like that. And it was even, I mean, the people that actually reported on it, um, the few people that reported on it in the Western press uh, kind of mentioned it as a, as a response to the July 14th uh, attack. Um, and that just made me go, oh my, you know, I just, uh, I don't know what to think. I just uh, wanted to uh, throw my computer out the window or find the person who had written that kind of thing and or find the people who had been involved in making that decision in France, you know, uh, and give them a good talking to. Because um, obviously bombing and killing large numbers of civilians in Syria would very likely or has a, a real possibility of creating uh, trauma and creating people uh, in Syria who are subjected to that uh, brutality, family members, etc., make them want to exact revenge for for that because, of course, this guy uh, in, in Nice, he... Uh, he was he was uh, um, Tunisian. Mm -hmm. uh, just look at a map. Tunisia isn't uh, Syria. Tunisians aren't Syrian. Um, there's no hard evidence that this guy did it uh, for any reason other than he was just uh, he lost the plot. He was he was disturbed. So then to go and bomb people, kill a couple of hundred people in Syria, supposedly as revenge for that and and the French people are meant to think that that is what that's going to keep them safe well no obviously it's actually going to make them uh, it's, it's going to create more danger for French people because if any member of those people killed in Syria any family member of those people killed in Syria uh, was you know uh, angry enough he, he might just uh, join up with some group uh, get free passage to France and go and kill some French people in response Um. So for the French government to sanction that suggests that the French government, government wants uh, French people to be killed. And they did it again, they're trying to create. They're trying to create the situation where as many French people as possible will be killed. I mean, it's not uh, rocket science kind of thinking there either, you know. So uh, go ahead, Alain. Well, just after this uh, latest uh, killing of this... Uh priest in Normandy by the two jihadists who uh, slit his throat 
I think another there was another French bombing in retaliation, yes. and forty five people mm. were, were civilians were killed in Manjib. Right. Uh, right. So that that's the policy. It's like this kind of. Uh, well, it's a self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecy, really, because uh, after Nice, Manuel Valls, the French Prime Minister, came out and said that French people are just going to have to live with terrorism. They're gonna, just going to have to live with these kind of attacks. Sorry, you're just going to have to deal with it. Suck it up, Frenchies. That's what happens. Shit happens. And then he goes, and presumably if he has any say in it, he goes and takes uh, orders the French military to take action that will actually create the continuation of the terrorism that he said will continue. Is that uh, is that an unreasonable conclusion to reach? Can I punch Manuel Valls in the face now? Yes, permission. Are the, police, are, the poli- are the police going to come to my door now for saying that? Have they recorded that and are they going to come? The only thing he can say in his defense is that, like Erdogan in Turkey, he has no control or influence over what the military will do. Somebody will say, oh, this is a great opportunity, send a couple of jets out. Um, just bomb wherever people live there, bomb there. And Val's left holding the can and having to take this. But yes, last night we ordered an airstrike. So the French military and I gave the command, blah, blah, blah. Like, think... like Erdogan did after the Russian shootdown. But yeah, actually, he's the, he's the last to know. I don't think it's a good analogy. And I don't, I don't think it's the same. We can't make the same. I mean, we're just, I don't think the French state is so subverted as. Oh, the chain of command, etc., is subverted as in Turkey. And if Manuel Valls is not directly in control, I mean, obviously it's it's a military decision, and but maybe there's politicians involved. But if Manuel Valls is not, <clears throat> uh, does has no control over it. He certainly isn't saying saying anything about it. He certainly isn't. He's not. He he seems to be adding fuel to the fire. He doesn't seem like the kind of person who, uh, based on his previous history, etc., who really. Um, cares that much uh, about the if, if he has no control over it he doesn't care very much about the fact that the French military is taking actions that will increase the uh, insecurity or increase the number of attacks on French people you know uh, I doubt it's the same kind of situation Turkey and France mm, well it- in in the West, we don't really have um, what we believe we have, which is we elect a leader, and he then chooses the cabinet or our government, and then they make decisions. They decide things. Yeah, we don't. That's not actually no, how it works, right? Um, in the, I think the more east you go away from the Western sphere, you can actually have a leader who uh, is close to or has seniority mm-hmm. he decides when something gets done um, ironically that's the stick the enlightened west beats the poor south or the despotic east with all the time they say oh yeah a strong man leader I see yeah, yeah but we went through elections to elect him oh yeah but still you know it's not very democratic the way you do things see what I'm getting at here there's no, well, that's that's clear that 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 there isn't that that, that commander in chief type persona doesn't exist in Western democracies. Obviously, there's a there's ramified networks and different interest groups and people with different control in different areas and stuff. But my point about Valls is that he's uh, an asshat. He he comes out and says to the French people after eighty of them or eighty four of them were killed, and he says, "I oh, just gonna have to live with it." 
that's not the kind of comment of a person who no, was free to say I, whatever he wanted in yeah. that moment. That's not the kind of comment of someone who would have a problem. I would say with, it's more his stupidity than his, than his evil that would make him say that. So he's stupid because he shouldn't have said that because he know he should have felt, well, that's not going to sound good. But he just said it because he knows the facts of life, which is that he does not have any influence to change the course that things are on. Sorry, guys. He could have meant it like, sorry, but we have to live with terrorism. I know enough to know that it's not going to change. In that sense, he was possibly being honest. You what's, know? He, what's he doing in politics then? Well, he did he say something was not going to change. <clears throat> he did say something that I thought was interesting in response to, I believe it was the Normandy um, attack where the, the priest had his throat slit. When he was, mm-hmm. he was saying, well, first of all, he said that um, French mosques, he's, I guess they're trying to get it so that they, they will have no foreign support or foreign sponsorship. And he also, mm. when he was referring, yes. when he was referring to the, the, you know, Muslim terrorist threat, he referred to it as Salafism. Now, this isn't something that, now, I don't know what it's like in, Fr- in France and how the French speak about, you know, Islam or, or radical Islam or, or the jihadi threat or whatever, but at least in the West, in English, we never hear the word Salafism used. Salafi is mm. basically the, the I Saudi. I thought he was speaking directly to Saudi Arabia with that statement. Yeah. Yeah, and a, and foreign yeah. support. I mean, who who's one of the biggest sponsors of foreign or you know uh, of mosques in European or elsewhere uh, nations? It's people like the Saudis and people like Gulen. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting that that's how he that's how he phrased it. He spoke specifically in terms of Salafism and foreign support of mosques. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, there was a story uh, this week that. Uh, yeah. That came out about an interview with a retired French Army General Jean Bernard Pinatel in uh, Le Figaro, and uh, basically the guy who's now a kind of I don't know geopolitical consultant of some of some kind said that I mean he was he was pretty bold about it. He said that if the European Union and Russia had gotten together in the nineties. Um, then they would have effectively been able to challenge uh, U.S.'s, quote, pretensions to global hegemony. Um, and that's in the Figaro. So uh, there, there still seems to be some strain of um, uh, sanity a- among the, at least some of the military minds of uh of France, how, mm. how influential this yeah. guy is, I have no idea. Um, but he said that uh, clearly the U.S.-led alliance against terrorism is a failure, and uh, basically, you know, Europe has to be looking, or should have been looking up until now, uh, to form an alliance with Russia in finding this sort of thing. Well, exactly, yeah, and I mean, Valls may have been talking about Saudi Arabia when he's talking about closing down foreign funding for mosques in. In France, but then at the same time, uh, France is one of the major suppliers of weapons to Saudi Arabia yeah. as they wage a war in Yemen. Now, does Valls have any control over that? I mean, if we went through all the... Uh, we know Holland doesn't have any control. He can hardly tie his shoelaces, probably. But um, Valls, I don't know. He seems to be more of a kind of front man, more of a kind of, I'm a tough guy. I'm going to take control here and stuff. And 
if he, you know, we could th- go through the list. Does he have any control over the arms manufacturers or, or over French uh, military sales, weapon sales to Saudi Arabia? No. If he doesn't, then we could go on to other lists and eventually we'll get to the point where we'll say, Val, you can't do anything. You have no control over anything. Why are you the prime minister? And then he would have to admit that it's just a ceremonial position. Which is probably true in most cases. But in that case, those people are just puppets. You know, they're, um, they're just front men. And the question then is, why are you representing merchants of death and evil actors who... Uh, create death and suffering on this planet? Why are you being a front man for them? Why are you even standing up uh, or standing in front of the actions that they carry out and trying to justify them in some way? Why are you not condemning them? Have you no conscience? And if you can't, if you find yourself in a position where you're in a bind kind of thing, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, well then just leave. Go away. Well, get out of politics. If you too, Alain. If, if you're properly educated and you get to that position in the West, You'll have absorbed enough um, information, most of it not true, but enough information to believe that there is no other way, that the West is the best because it is, and it must stay that way. And everything that works towards that is... um, Well, in that case, I would revert back to my my initial position of wanting to punch him in the face. Right, so... I mean, either way, I mean, I'm trying to find a silver lining here. Is there, is there, you were seem to be, you were like kind of arguing for him being, uh, you know, not being in control, not having a say in any of this and, and basically just being a, a puppet. Um, but if he is, puppets have a choice as well, you know? And I mean, I can't, sure. I'm trying to find some, no, some, some, any redeeming quality in any of these people. Uh, and even if you strip away all of their power, they're still the public face that stands in front of and supports and gives validity to criminality. Because mm-hmm. uh, if they had any integrity as a decent human being, they just, and they found themselves in that position, they wouldn't be there. If they discovered that this is just a ceremonial position, I don't have the power to control anything here, uh, and I can't do the good works that I had planned to do when I, when I got to be pre- prime minister or president, yeah. well, then I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to have this on my conscience. I'm not going to stand I'm up fairly, and lie to the public. I'm, I'm not going fairly to certain these internal monologues, conversations, rather, um, go on in the mind of Angela Merkel. Because she's a lot more cagey about the things she'll say. So that makes her either less evil or less stupid, say, than Val's. Um, well, this, this gets back to Turkey again, talking about Merkel. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is up with Merkel? Now they're kind of rounding her because of these terror attacks in Germany that just came out of nowhere. Oh, look, a bunch of people just went crazy and chopped people up and shot people and stuff. One of them, the biggest attack in Berlin, was it Berlin? Munich. Munich. Yes. Munich. Biggest attack in Munich. That was not linked to any jihadi-ism. But it was, you could, if you searched, you won't really find that. You just ask anybody and they'll say, yeah, no, that attack in, in Munich, whatever, when some jihadi, no, he wasn't a jihadi. And officially he had no connection whatsoever with any ISIS or anything like that. He didn't do it for any religious reasons. or If any... anything, he was a whitey. Right. right. So, but you don't really get that. That wasn't, you know, proclaimed by the media. Oh, by the way, everybody should know this was not a, a Muslim terror attack. You do not have to demonize Muslims over this one. It was just lumped in with the other but three. But by the time they finished making that statement, four other things had happened. 
because there was they all boom boom boom. But boom, they didn't make that it. statement. Is the point? They didn't yeah. even make that statement. So uh, they're kind of complicit in allowing it just to be seen as Muslim terror attacks. So it so it demonizes Muslims. So anyway, this all these these four attacks happened in space for a week almost in in Germany, and it's most of them three out of four are refugee uh, associated or linked. So it's like, oh my God, Merkel, what have you done? Like the past year or 18 months or something, Germans felt really good about themselves. They were all like, yeah, bring in all the refugees, you know, let's give them a home, let's help them from the war-torn uh, Syria and, 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 you know, let's let's put them up and, and we'll feel good about ourselves as a result. And that lasted for a little while. And then obviously in the current climate, i.e. the climate of the past 15, 16 years, there's going to be some kind of a terror attack with all of these people coming from Syria, which is infested with ISIS. Mm. Germany supposedly takes in a million. Everybody says, good job, Germany, you're so compassionate. And Merkel and co. couldn't foresee that or the high probability of there being a terror attack associated with this influx of immigrants from Syria, which is infested by ISIS, and couldn't foresee that then the whole world and the German media and all the media, etc., all the Western media, basically anti-Islam Western media, would say, Merkel, you're a goner. You screwed up big time here. What did you do that for? It's all on you. German people are dying because you let in all those immigrants. And Merkel's like, oh, sorry, I'll go. It was, could she not have just resigned herself? Save herself some, well, what's going on there? Is she that stupid? Well, this is it. This is the twice-elected leader of the most powerful country in Europe. And she, too, can't do anything but roll with it. It's ridiculous. You'd think these people have some self-respect, if that's the case, you know, and just have some kind of rebellion, get together and say, you know, the French uh, public politicians, the Germans, the Brits, if there are any... um, (laughs) Um, Italy, Spain, all get together and say, listen, are you guys not tired of being just dupes? You know, being lackeys? I mean, is your, is your, are your fancy palaces and your, your connections and your fine wine and stuff, is that not getting t- old for you? Do you not want to have some power? Why don't we get together and do something about it? Or let's all just resign. Well, it might, it might be testimony to the, the, the the pressures that they're under. I mean, Let's go home. Mer- Merkel can't send a text message without everyone in Langley having read it first before she's even pressed send. Right. So, At what point does that get? Just you just get less, you get so tired of that situation. You say, "I'm going to go home and just knit. <laughs> go home and knit. I'm going to knit some socks for the rest of my life. You know, be better than this crappy deal." Does that never occur to those people that there is actually a life after politics? Maybe they don't know that there's another life after politics because they've been in it for so long. What's wrong with them, you know? And that's assuming, but uh, the fact that they don't do that suggests to me that they're in it for because they're greedy and they're in it for whatever little bits of power, little scraps of power are thrown their way, the sense of power they have. They're just addicted to that. And um, well, you that's have to why wonder they're, if that's why they stay. There's some kind of geopolitical. Uh, Stockholm syndrome among the uh, among the elites who stay in these roles of power when they know full well that they're subject to Western pressure, manipulation, 
uh, maybe even veiled threats. I mean, is there something kind of sick? Is there some sickness? Uh, it's not even a question. There, there is some kind of sickness within them that uh, that is possibly, you know, a- addicted to being subject to to this kind of uh, manipulation. Uh, yeah, or and, well, addicted to the, to the little bits of power that they have. Because I mean, you look at the average person. I'm sure everybody knows the the kind of the story of someone uh, of a person who's been working their whole life in a job and then they're facing retirement and they don't want to retire. And when they retire, they don't know what to do themselves. They, the, the thought of retirement, of being just, like I said, you know, sitting at home, you know, doing nothing much, gardening and knitting socks, for example, uh, it's just horrible to them after their high stress, high profile, you know, busy lifestyle for so many years and suddenly they're faced with just uh, going going away. The, even the average person has problems with that, you know. So when you throw in the power and the wealth and all that kind of stuff and the prestige, you can see how it might be difficult, but still, uh, I'm not happy with them. Mm-hmm. I hope they all. I hope they all know that. How do I let them know that I'm not happy, but with them? Write a letter. Send a message. <laughs> I'm going to write a letter. Dear Miss Merkel, <laughs> Mrs. Merkel. All right. Anything else on? Go. Anything else on the? Uh, hard look in the mirror. On the uh, recent, like, uh, well, terror and non-terror attacks. Before we go to our police state roundup, uh, no, nothing really. Just that I mean, what happened in Germany is is mirrored in so many ways. People are just going crazy everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. already a Wikipedia page for a list of terror attacks the world over in July, and it's like four times as big a page as any month previous. Somebody's obviously listing them all. And this is global, not just in Europe. Um, a number of those, though, I suspect, are just simply people going nuts. Um, but they're attributed to terrorism because, hey, there's a narrative there. Let's explain why people are going nuts because it's terrorism. We live under this, like Manuel Valls says, oh, we're going to have to live with it. Yeah, we're going to have to live with people going crazy. <laughs> so uh, one story stood out this week among many. guy in Albania goes into a hospital He's upset over something, the quality of his treatment. I don't know what. And it's a horrific video. I think it's That's still available. He, he doused himself in petrol. Oh, he dropped a canister of it and set fire to it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the whole ward, you see, going up in flames, three people were killed, including himself. Mm. And then that knife attack in <sighs> Japan. Yeah. Killed 19, yeah. In, in, a, in an old people's home or a hospital or whatever home for disabled people. And the guy said he was doing it to help the government? Because he wanted, uh, he thought that disabled people should have the the right to, uh, like, a a, um, how do you call it, like a dignified death or something, basically euthanasia. Yes. And so he was just going to help them along. That was his narrative. Killed them all in their sleep. That's what what this world, that's what, you know, that's what this world has done to people, basically. It's doing to people, you know. As much as we feel the pressure and, and the, the sorry state of the world, there's a lot of people out there who are just uh, who are on the edge already and, and this kind of stuff. I mean, this is... Who do you put the blame for this? Who, whose door do you drop the blame for this at? I mean, well, who has been destroying the world uh, for the past however however many decades, you know? Just, you know, just uh, mismanaging everything basically creating suffering and, you know, um, for people just in their daily lives, cutting jobs, 
cutting wages, um, you know, cutting uh, state funding for for the basics that will keep people on an even keel, uh, giving all the money and or fun, funneling tax money all the way up into corporations to you know this this massive disbalance, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that you talk about, you know. Fifty percent of the world's wealth is held by, or ninety percent of the world's wealth, or eighty percent, or whatever it is, is is held by very small percentage of the population. And there's so many people in in, in poverty and hunger and struggling, struggling to to make ends meet. Uh, you know that obviously has direct effect on people on their on their on their mental stability, and they can only take so much before they they lose the plot. And I mean, the the blame has to be placed at at the door of the people in, in power who enact these laws that have this direct effect on ordinary people, i.e. make them suffer in in one way or another. And that suffering of humanity on a large scale then has a kind of, it just seems to, you know, give rise to more, uh, more suffering and, and people just not being able to handle it anymore, you know, who are already suffering or pushed over the edge, you know. So yeah, cool. But on a on a brighter note, let's go to uh, Cop Roundup. Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Yes, you do. Wow! They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. Did you keep smiling at me? Like this is some kind of funny thing? Okay, I, okay. there's nothing funny about it. Okay, then stop smiling. Right, boys! Hands in your hand! Good! Good now! All right, Brent. Hey, hey Brent. How's it going? Well, super. <laughs> what yeah. have you got, Chris? Uh, quite a lot, actually, this week. Um, probably the biggest headline that I found was that in the first of its kind study, um, researchers published a paper in a British medical uh, journal that um, estimated about 55,400 people were shot or hospitalized during legal stop and search incidents in uh, 2012. So this is something <clears throat> our own government doesn't really keep track of. In the U.S.? Sorry? Yeah, in, in the, the U.S. US? 55,000 people? Yeah, killed or hospitalized. Year? In, in 2012, yeah. So that number's probably gone up. Um, but it's the first of its kind study. Um, nobody's really tallied uh, incidences of police violence over the years. Even the federal government doesn't keep track of how many people the police kill. Um, granted, these include um, officers that were, you know, arresting violent people who may have been shooting back or whatever, but this also includes, you know, everyone. Uh, it found that blacks, Native Americans, and Hispanics had much higher stop and arrest rates per 10,000 people than whites and Asians. And blacks were by far the most likely group to be stopped and arrested. Um, the interesting thing about this data, though, is that it shows that when you are stopped, no matter what race you are, you have the same odds of being killed by the police, uh, regardless of your race. So that was an interesting finding um, and should really be a wake-up call for the rest of the population in the U.S. that it, you know, it's not just, you know, I've heard a lot of, a lot of justifications um, that are, you know, basically racism based, but, you know, people need to wake up to the fact that if the police stop you, regardless of what color your skin is, you have the same propensity of being killed <laughs> as anybody else. 
Um, this story is particularly disgusting. Um, this uh, former police officer <clears throat> and uh, probation officer out of Ohio, Carl Cannonberg, was charged with raping a seven-year-old girl while she was a patient at a university hospital um, back in February. Um, this guy was apparently visiting somebody in the hospital and somehow had access to the seven-year-old patient who was wearing nothing but a hospital gown. Um, he's been charged with two counts of rape, two counts of gross sexual imposition, and two counts of kidnapping. Uh, according to the indictment, three of the sexual assaults occurred at the hospital while the young victim wore a hospital gown while he was visiting another patient, and another incident happened prior to at a separate unnamed location. Um, <clears throat> this guy was booked on uh, July 12th and was released prior pending his arraignment on August uh, 17th. And, you know, posing the, the crime that he committed here was completely, you know, disgusting, violent, um, disturbing. And yet he was still, you know, released until his trial, um, which is kind of out of the ordinary. And the article that I'm reading basically, you know, supposes that it has to do with the fact that he was a, an ex-police officer. Um, another incidence of uh, cops being charged with terrible crimes and getting, you know, the white glove treatment. Um, let's see. This is a story out of Florida yet again. A 14-year-old boy who was playing with a toy gun got shot by police. Thankfully, he survived. Um, somebody called the police reporting that there was a prowler with a gun um, wandering the neighborhood. Turned out to be a, um, you know, a teenager with a toy gun and who apparently has some sort of mental problems. Um, wasn't really specific. The officer said that he approached the teen and told him to put his hands up and claims that the child then pulled the toy gun and pointed it at the officer. And the officer fired six shots at the boy and missed all but one, which hit him in the leg. Um, he's been placed on administrative leave, of course, and, you know, during this uh, internal investigation, they'll, they'll no doubt be cleared of any wrongdoing because he was in fear for his life. Can't distinguish a toy gun from a real one. Um, let's see. Uh, there was a anti-police brutality protest in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a, uh, a woman was dragged away by her legs after she was peacefully protesting. Video footage of the sit-in shows cops single out a woman in the crowd and attempt to drag her away as her colleagues attempt to hold her back from the police. The result is a tug of war with the woman suspended in midair, screaming continuously as one cop pulls each leg and the protesters hold onto her upper body. Uh, 69 other people were arrested on Tuesday and Wednesday for, quote, public nuisance and unlawful assembly as the police were clearly on a mission to uh, break up the protests there. Um, there's another video. And those were protests of uh, police brutality, right? Yeah, it was an anti-police brutality uh, protest in St. Paul, Minnesota. So as if to prove the point, the police have to go in there and demonstrate exactly what they're, what these people are protesting against. Okay. Yeah, it's it's um, it's just unbelievable. And this is, I mean, you see stories like this almost every week now. Um, there's a video, um, new video. Uh, where was this? Caddo County. I'm not sure. Somewhere in the United States, another black man was strangled to death while in police custody. 
Um, <clears throat> there's video footage that's available. Uh, this came off of press TV. And um, basically this guy was uh, isolated in a holding cell. And um, he seems to be, I don't know if he's you know angry or frustrated or what, but he has a blanket around his shoulder. He starts swinging around the blanket. And um, corrections officers or guards or whatever you want to call them come into the cell and try to restrain him. He resists. They end up pinning him on the ground, um, basically with a, a knee on the back of his neck. He ends up dying, uh, being choked to death. The, uh, the coroner basically ruled the cause of death manual compression of the neck, and his death was ruled a homicide. Um, nobody's been charged yet, and they are uh, doing an internal investigation. Well, a few more details on that one. He was he was arrested and put in put in the holding cell for there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest for child support that he didn't pay eight years ago. So they they brought him in on this, and if you watch the video, uh, the whole thing's available on YouTube. He kind of goes a bit crazy in the cell, and he's throwing stuff around, um, kind of makes a mess of the place, um, throws the bed around. He's kind of ripping up this blanket, and then, like you said, he kind of he's flailing it around and flailing it at the door. After this, the two um, officers come in, and he's sitting down. They're talking with him, and it looks like everything's going all right. And when, you, when you're watching the video, he leans forward towards the male officer, and at that point, it's hard to see what exactly he's doing because you're looking at his back as he's leaning forward. And then the guy um, just immediately like stands up, grabs him, puts him in a chokehold, and it was actually the chokehold that, uh, that killed him. He, was, he had him in this, um, this chokehold for over 60 seconds, and that when, the, when the medics came after he died, the, the two police didn't mention anything about the chokehold. Like, so the, the coroner or whoever did the examination of the body actually had to find out and looked at his throat, and it was totally crushed. They couldn't even get, um, like, I think it's a quarter-inch tube down his throat to, um, to... No, it wasn't even the coroner. It was the people that came, da- came there because they tried to revive him, so they p- tried to put a tube into his, into his throat to get him breathing, and they couldn't even get the tube through his mouth through his throat because it was crushed like totally they said it was it was like um it was an ex- it was fairly extreme like it's not normal even if, when you choke someone like his throat was totally crushed and they didn't mention anything about the chokehold they had, that came out afterwards after you know the the medics had had ruled that or found out that his throat was basically destroyed yeah, no doubt they will be placed on administrative leave, a.k.a. paid vacation, and the uh, investigation will um, dismiss any wrongdoing on the part of the officers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is another story uh, about a Virginia cop, a former U.S. Navy veteran who is on trial for murder. Um, he told a witness, quote, this is my second one after killing an unarmed 18-year-old black man in April of 2015. Uh, this guy... Is uh, really sketchy. Um, where is his name? Stephen Rankin. He had deployed a taser against this um, this black guy, and um, the taser actually recorded him saying this to one of the witnesses uh, seconds after he had fatally shot the unarmed team and alleged shoplifter. A uh, guy's name was William Chapman in the store's parking lot of April 2015. Um, <clears throat> this guy uh, Rankin. He had killed another unarmed guy uh, under circumstances that were questionable, 
and he got three years administrative leave while the investigation was pending. And it had been less than a year that he was back on the beat before he has killed again. Um, and his lawyer actually tried to argue that the statement was inadmissible, <laughs> which um, thankfully the judge kind of overruled. Um, but it's just another, this guy is really, you go into this article, uh, there's an article on Free Thought Project, I'll post a link in the chat. The details of the history where this guy murdered uh, another person before is really, um, really disturbing. This guy, uh, he supposedly was responding to somebody who was um, drunkenly pounding on a door uh, at, at a, somebody's house. Um, and he says that the guy had charged towards him and shot him 11 times in the chest and limbs. Um, no weapons were recovered, um, and the family is filing a $22 million civil lawsuit against the officer. Then this police officer went online and posted 250 comments derisively attacking the uh, individual's character and insulting his family. Um, said things like, 22 mil won't buy your boy back, let alone wow. a habitual drunk working as a hotel cook. Wow. Um, interestingly, weeks prior to him killing this guy, one of the officer's supervisor had mentioned that this guy was, quote, dangerous and likely to harm someone. Um, further revelations included a Facebook post where the cop had referred to his firearms as, quote, Rankin's box of vengeance. Um, also on his Facebook, he had uh, some Nazi propaganda. Um, he had a, a photograph of a dead Serb who had been lynched by the Nazis in 1943 as his profile picture. Um, so this is clearly not someone we want patrolling the streets with uh, a weapon and justification to use deadly force. The um, supervisors knew that, and yet a lot, and he was still able to get away with murder, murdering this guy. Um, and here now he's he's done it again. So we'll see what happens after this incident. Um, this is an interesting story is related to the drug war. Um, California is voting on um, like full legalization of marijuana come November. And the cops out there have been ramping up their, um, uh, their efforts to basically shut down smash and grab against um, legally licensed companies that produce cannabis products. This one guy has a, a company that produces um high-potency uh, CO2-extracted cannabis oil. And uh, he manufactures it and distributes it to um, medical supply country, uh, corporations across the state. Uh, they raided the office, and they seized uh, $1.4 million in cash, product, and money from various bank accounts belonging to the owner. Um, 325000 was found in a safe. The cops reportedly high-fived each other when they opened the safe. Um, everything from this guy's personal accounts to his savings accounts for his kids' college funds have been frozen. Um, and these, these, these cops have just been going on a rampage, basically um, trying to grab as much uh, assets as they can. They use the assets forfeiture stuff. Keep in mind, this guy has not been charged with a crime. Um, you know, he's done nothing illegal in the state of California, uh, yet the police still have the ability to, you know, break into his business 
and commit theft, grand theft. Um, that's that's got to be at the behest of the uh, corporations, the pharmaceutical corporations that are planning to uh, want to corner the market on that, right? They want to run anybody out of business who's already doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, cannabis oil uh, and, and cannabis itself has been shown to treat anything from, you know, epilepsy to cancer. Um, and it's very cheap and easy to produce, and you can't really uh, can't patent the formula. Um, right. So pharmaceutical companies naturally are uh, are threatened by it. Um, it's one how of those pharmaceutical. Few... How does a pharmaceutical Sorry. company get the uh, get the police to uh, to do their bidding? It's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I would assume it has to do with, you know, local old boys networks. These guys, you know, shareholders have, you know, their their groups of friends and they chit-chat behind closed doors. I mean, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on for a minute, but, you know, it's just well, you, it just seems a little know, suspicious. The police in the United States were originally created to bust union pickets and break a protest. Um, at the behest of the direct, direct behest of corporate interest. So, in a sense, they're returning to their original function. Yeah. Yeah, and before that, they were used to um, round up escaped slaves. So the, the tide of racism isn't that much of a stretch either. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. It's another incidence of cops going to the wrong house and shooting a couple's dog, and then they made fun of the... Uh, the, the owners for, for quote, grieving. Um, they were alerted by a 911 call to a domestic disturbance. The address that they were given did not exist, and they saw, you know, a young couple in the area, and so they assumed it was them. Um, as they approached the house, um, you know, the dog went around to, you know, say hi, and the officers immediately opened fire and shot him twice. Thankfully, the dog survived, um, but the, uh, the the woman was standing there, and you know they were applying pressure to the wounds and trying to keep, you know, blood from the dog from bleeding out. And one of the officers said, "Quote: You need to calm down because you're being annoying." And then asked, "Are you guys arguing?" Because and then they of course said, "You know, we're not arguing." And the, the police realized that they had the wrong, you know, couple. Um. Thankfully, the dog's expected to survive. The police were equipped with body cameras. However, all three officers conveniently forgot to turn them on before approaching the home. Um, This is another interesting story. The man that filmed Eric Garner's death is now suing the city of New York for $10 million. Um, Ramsey Orta, who um, was the man who recorded the the cell phone video that went viral, was um, arrested and charged days later with... uh, Possession of an illegal weapon. Um, let's see, uh, heroin set, dealing heroin, um, hiding a woman, hiding a firearm in a woman's pants. Um, he's facing up to four years uh, in prison. Uh, the sentencing hearing is coming out in October. Um, they're saying they're going to review all the charges. I mean, I don't question. Uh, you know, maybe he, maybe this man did, you know sell heroin or ha- had a weapon or whatever, but it just seems so convenient that, <clears throat> you know, the only one involved <laughs> in the uh, the shooting who was arrested was the guy that shot the video. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, 
interesting story, uh, kind of related, but uh, a little bit different. There was a Twitch streamer. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Twitch. It's this uh, website that um, lets people stream video games while they play, and people can you know watch and comment. Um, somebody decided to swat him. Swatting is when uh, a third party, generally with a uh, malicious intent, calls the police and reports some sort of uh, questionable or, or violent activity at a scene that's not happening. And the, it's the, the driving force to get the SWAT team to show up um, to cause trouble for the individual. So this guy was in a park catching Pokemon on his phone when a bunch of cops approached him with weapons drawn. And thankfully, this guy was able to explain, you know, that he didn't have a weapon, that, you know, he's just catching Pokemon. But they um, <clears throat> they approached him with weapons uh, weapons hot and, you know, could have ended very violently. And this is uh, coming a, a pattern where Internet trolls are swatting streamers. Um, there was a story out of... Uh, Canada, um, this was from November of 2015, it was in the New York Times, about a uh, female streamer who was uh, harassed and kind of cyber-stalked by an individual, and he um, would call SWAT teams on her repeatedly, and he has also called SWAT teams on other female streamers um, after his you know, advances online were, uh, were turned down. It's a very dangerous sort of game that people play. And unfortunately, it's a very fuzzy area in the law. Um, you know, it's hard to prosecute people for, for swatting. Um, uh, this story comes out of Florida yet again, where a uh, crazy judge goes on a racist uh, rant and uh, tells one, um, one African-American individual to, quote, get on a ship and go back to Africa. <laughs> Um, during a conversation with a staff lawyer, uh, this judge said that black people should go get on a ship and go back to Africa, according to a report. He's also recurring, uh, accused of referring to a staff attorney as a, I guess I can't say that, it's the B word, and also use the, the C word. Um, and uh, now he's being investigated um, for... Uh, you know, he also has a, a, a pretty bad history of um, sexism and referring to women in derogatory manners, uh, from, says the people that have, have worked with him in the past. Um, so it's not just the police officers that are uh, corrupt and racist. It's also the judges. <laughs> um, Chelsea Manning, um, a.k.a. Bradley Manning, is the... Uh, soldier who released the um, video from Iraq showing uh, indiscriminate targeting of civilians years ago, who's been in solitary or has been held by the military. Um, he's serving a 35-year sentence. He recently uh, attempted suicide, and um, now uh, she's been kept in solitary confinement. Um, just the treatment of this, this individual has been really, really horrid. You know, d denied uh, ability to confer with her lawyers, um, denied proper medical treatment, um, kept in solitary, which is, you know, torture, basically. And, um, you know, naturally that will drive you to an edge. Um, but uh, it's, it's just unreal how, you know, this guy's, you know, been treated when you compare that with Hillary Clinton, whose, um, you know, crimes are similar in nature, 
and yet, you know, she's now running for president. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's, it just shows that there's, uh, you know, a two-tier system of justice in the United States. There's, you know, one for the elite and the oligarchs and one for the rest of us. Uh-huh. Um, this is a really disturbing story. Uh, innocent rape victim was thrown in jail and beaten uh, to make sure that she would testify against a rapist. This woman in Texas um, was found in police custody um, where she suffered beatings and psychological terror because of uh, criminally inept authorities who didn't want to care for her over a Christmas break. There was a trial happening where this guy was on trial for raping this woman. And um, this woman has, uh, you know, bipolar disorder and some other, you know, like mental issues. And they didn't want to, you know, deal with keeping track of her or making sure that she was, you know, getting proper care over a Christmas break. So the prosecutor um, had her locked up in uh, Harris County Jail um, for no reason, basically, other than being a rape victim who struggles with mental disability. Um, She was locked up in December of 2015. Um, she had a mental breakdown while she was testifying against a rapist and um, didn't want her to flee before they could have her finish testifying. So they, they had her locked up for about a month. When she was locked up, they mislabeled her as the perpetrator of a sex crime instead of the victim. So the authorities uh, in the jail treated her as such. And, you know, she was, you know, psychologically terrorized, ridiculed. Uh, shamed, um, beaten, um, and yet somehow managed to survive all that to um, actually testify against her rapist when when it was all said and done. Um, it's just unbelievable. This is how they treat people, um, you know, especially victims. Um, and insane. there's even it just goes to show that you know they they don't really. They don't really care. And even if this person was a, you know, supposed perpetrator of, of a crime who was on trial, you know, ostensibly we have a, a right to not be cruel and unusually punished. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what else you would call <clears throat> the treatment of this poor woman other than cruel and unusual. Um, exactly. Let's see. Oh, and this is real. You mentioned it earlier on the show, Joe, but uh, I was reading about the uh, federal authorities going door to door in Florida to collect urine samples to quote check for Zika virus. It's a very disturbing and very Orwellian story um, about you know local authorities going door to door to I don't know if they're asking or demanding um, for urine samples from citizens. Um, but I mean, can you just imagine, you know, having, you know, <laughs> some, some authorities come to knock on your door and be like, oh yeah, you know, there's some, there's some Zika in your ear and we're wondering if you, you know, we could have your, your urine to, to see if you guys have been infected. <laughs> like it, it just sets a really scary precedent. Um, I mean, I don't even, you know, Zika virus is very relatively harmless. Um, most of the time people that get it don't even get symptoms. Um, when they do get symptoms, they kind of get over it on their own without medical intervention. Um, so it's really curious as to what's really going on here. Um, well, I have no doubt that the Zika thing is just a cover story, but first, guys they, have, came, uh, first they came for your urine. <laughs> right. Probably the most appropriate use of the term piss off in response to the <laughs> 
Um, yeah, you have no idea what these guys are going to do with your urine. You know, are they going to, are they going to drug test it? Um, they mm-hmm. get hits on the drug test. Are they going to come back and arrest you? Like, it's yeah. just. That's what, um, that's what you got to think about, uh, unfortunately, these days. Yeah. I mean, it's, if somebody came to my door and knocked and asked for, for my tinkle potty, I would say no. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. Everyone's got to um, preserve their precious bodily fluids. Keep yeah, them, it looks like what you don't share in collection. You know, they, you really don't but know. Be, but if you say no, then you'd be accused of resisting arrest. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the symbol and drum noise? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was also. I need. <laughs> delayed laughter. <laughs> Um, you guys had, uh, what's his name? Rob, Robbie Martin is yep. Abby Martin's brother. Yep. Um, Abby Martin was down, uh, covering the DNC and she was aggressively and violently arrested, um, simply for trying to cover a, uh, um, a civil disobedience action. You know, they were trying to get to the area where this action was happening and because of the way that the police had locked down the streets and, um, you know, put fences up everywhere, you know, they just kept trying to move closer towards it. They asked an officer how they were supposed to get closer towards it. He directed them. And then when she approached the area where she was directed to, a female officer demanded her credentials. And um, she said that she, you know, they were credentialed, but they didn't have credentials to cover this particular event. Um, the producer was trying to explain it to her and they decided that was enough to grab her and arrest her for civil disobedience. But the shady thing that was happening down at the DNC is that they weren't technically arresting people. They were just kind of like snatch and grabbing them and detaining them for, you know, anywhere from, you know, an hour to 24 hours. Um, and just kind of like holding them and then either issuing a citation or just letting them go without anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, you know, people are they're being, you know, grabbed, handcuffed, um, thrown in, you know, not healthy conditions, you know, either you know, freezing cold or boiling hot. Um, and basically you get kidnapped for a certain amount of time by the state. And, you know, you know, you're never told what's happening to you, uh, you know, and you don't know if you're going to get released until it happens. Um, she has a little interesting, like, almost four minute video. Uh, on Mint Press News, which I think is uh, another alternative website. And uh, I just dropped the link in the chat well, where she talks couple... about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, go for it. Well, just a couple of things about that, Brent. And uh, that is, you know, obviously the, the implicit message is uh, don't kind of <laughs> don't protest. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you, you might you know, you might beat the rap, but you won't beat the, uh, the time or, or whatever the expression is. And, um, you know, this harkens back to the RNC convention in New York city. And like, I think it was, I want to say 2004 or thereabouts when, when Bush was running for a second term and, uh, New Yorkers were basically swept up off of the streets, taken to this old bus depot on the West side of town and held there for two days uh, by the hundreds. Um, yeah, they, so this, I remember the yeah, stories about them putting up. They had this uh, that orange plastic fencing. I don't know if you've ever seen it or if uh, our listeners have ever seen it. 
but they were basically just like quietly deploying this fencing around huge groups of people, you know, protesters, uh, you know, commuting New Yorkers, uh, tourists, anybody who happened to be on the street could get swept up in these mass arrests. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very similar, very similar to that. And, um, I'm sure we can expect to see more of this in the future, which is a good reminder to, you know, everybody listening, you know, protesting is, is all well and good, but while you're doing it, make sure that you are very clearly aware of what's happening around you, what the police are doing. Um, and if your spider sense starts tingling, just get out. It's not, it's not worth suffering, you know, violence at the hands of the state. They literally view you as um, insurgent cattle, and they will taser you and herd you, and not think twice about it. Yeah, you know your your constitutional rights be damned. <laughs> doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter to them. Speaking of protests, just a little a little news bit. Um, on August fourth, Sibel Edmonds is staging a a kind of protest. Um, Occupy type thing outside of NBC headquarters in New York for um, demanding a retraction and apology for the propaganda that they um, put out on the night of the Turkish coup saying that Erdogan had been um, denied landing rights in Istanbul and then was going to, to Germany to seek asylum. They quoted, when they put that out, they quoted top U.S. military sources as their source for that bit of information. And then, you know, within the next day, they took it down without officially retracting it. And so the Turkish government is now involved. They've demanded an apology and a retraction and an explanation for this. And so far in the last, like, week or two of, of you know, massive Twitter campaigns and letter writing, NBC has yet to respond. So Sabelle Edmonds is getting a bunch of people to get to get together in New York outside of NBC studios to, um, to demand an explanation to, to say who was responsible and to apologize. And according to people that uh, she's been in contact with, um, the, the, the rumor going around is that the source of this information was General, I believe, John Campbell. He's the guy that the Turks have accused of being one of the masterminds, mm-hmm. one of the U.S. masterminds behind the, the coup. So that'll be interesting yeah, to watch, so, see if NBC so, says anything. Well, I, I think Comes out in the midst that they talk a load of nonsense, so they made shit up. Yeah. Mm-hmm from the producer of the Him. NBC segment, but uh, it was so, so half-assed that uh, it might as well not have been, I think. What might as well not have been? Well, it, he, it sounded oh, like... Oh, his, his explanation, his yeah. Ex- yeah. Yeah, maybe I will go It's on Thursday and check it out and see, uh, see what I can see. It's not that far yeah. from me. All right, are you... Is that it for this week, Brent? Yeah, that's my list of disturbing and uh, depressing police stories. Well, <laughs> we're going to have to just start a, a, a police state show. <laughs> yeah, we could. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could probably extend it. I can go on. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that pops up that's not um, exactly current. I see stories that pop up that are... Uh, you know, things from 2015, 2014 that I've never heard of before that just, you know, pop up in my feed or, or that I come right. across while I'm looking at these stories. Um, I generally leave those out because I have more than enough just from the last week of stuff that's relatively yeah, recent. For sure. Um, 
but yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy, and you know the what's happening out there. I, I don't know how many people that don't listen to the show really have a bird's eye view of all the different events. You know, they'll hear about the big ones here and there. Uh, but when you take all of this together, it really demonstrates a, a pattern of pathological behavior by state officials that just blows your mind. You know, things that you would never expect to see in the United States that have become the daily reality for, for thousands of people, if not millions. Mm-hmm. It's, well, there, it's there a was new just... reality. I mean, the Gestapo could never have dreamed of having uh, the kind of reach and uh, green light to do what the U.S. police do. Phenomenal. Yeah, and, and consistently you see, you know, uh, police union people um, and, and other officials come out and defend this behavior as if it's legitimate and justified. And, and that sets off, you know, ridiculous amounts of alarm bells in my head, um, especially when you see it, you know, over and over and over again in, in cases where the, the behavior and the events are just so egregious that any rational thinking person would look at it and say, you know, this is a crime. But because it's an officer who is the perpetrator, you know, they either get the, the white glove treatment or it, you know, they just get paid administrative leave and uh, eventually the, the hubbub dies down and it gets swept under the carpet. Mm-hmm. Well, Brent, just one story that kind of, um, I think, struck out and or stuck out in my mind this week was um, we had this carried in sot was uh, the arrest of a 18 or 19-year-old black man in the subway of, uh, of London or somewhere in England who was apparently just arguing with his girlfriend when cops approached him. And in the heat of the moment, he, I guess threatened to spit at the cops and he got tackled by four cops and they put this this hood on his head that was supposedly called a spit hood or spit guard and um you know the girlfriend and, a, and another white woman in the vicinity of of this occurring were screaming you know they just had an argument that's it uh you know leave him alone get off of him what are you doing and um, it so resembled uh, so much of uh, you know the the reports that you recall today, and and the sort of stories that we see here in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if it's just because we haven't seen very many of these type things occurring in England or not, or or if or if this type of uh, mentality. Well, I think it might be it might be spreading, spreading a little England. bit. Generally speaking, yeah, I mean, it, it may be spreading to a certain extent, but I mean, generally speaking, uh, uh, you know, in, in the UK and in Europe and in European countries and stuff, the cops just don't respond with that level of heavy handedness, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they're trying to change that by having all these terror attacks and responding to these terror attacks in the way that they are, you know, uh, totally hysterically and, and passing, you know, draconian legislation, you know, putting more guns and police hands and stuff so we'll see but uh it seems like the u.s has got off to a running start on that one anyway you know with the history of just of gun violence in the u.s you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah right. very well, disturbing thanks brent we'll yeah, uh, thanks brent. Yeah, no problem. we'll talk next week talk okay to you. take care yeah. take care brent thanks Bye. brent have a good day all right
We'll call it a day, I think, guys, will we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Gone um, over our allotted time. <clears throat> yes, run over. But, uh, yep. So, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone, and for chatting. Hope you enjoyed the show, um, as such as it was, <laughs> as enjoyable as it as it was, to discuss all these uh, horrible things. But, you know, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting in a certain sense and depressing. But anyway, um, we never know what's around the next corner. The, today is the last day of July. Hopefully, the horrible month of July that it was on so many fronts will give way to Funny rabbits and unicorns in August. <laughs> but don't, <laughs> but don't, don't, don't hope too hard. <laughs> but don't count on it. Um, but we'll see. You never know. Okay. Uh, but if there are bunny rabbits and unicorns on the menu, uh, you'll see it first on Sat.net, obviously. So, uh, <laughs> and then we'll be here to talk about it. Yes. And then we'll be here to talk about it with graphics as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, uh, thanks for listening and to Kent, our caller, and to Brent, and thanks, guys, for, for being here. We'll be back next week with another show to be announced. Until then, have a good one. Have See a good you. evening. See you next week. Be safe, week. everyone. Bye, Bye everyone.